the reason that the whole Limage project came together as a multilingual person, I know that people want their stories to be heard. My name is Ai Taniguchi, and I am an assistant professor of English language linguistics and online teaching at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. In the field of linguistics, we kind of forget there's people attached to the languages that we're studying sometimes. We have to sort of sit back down and ask ourselves as linguistics educators, why does linguistics matter for people? And how can this project help with those kinds of learning outcomes? Language is a big part of your identity. Language matters, linguistics matters because language is a huge part of who you are. Linguistics, language, and Limoges. In honor of Canadian Multiculturalism Day, which comes around each year on June 27th, we are talking about identity that directly correlates to the language or languages that we use. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on the UTM academic community. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members and students from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of UTM science labs, enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs on campus, and put a spotlight on our academic community at large. On the new season called We Are UTM, I will introduce you to some of the people from our vibrant and ever-growing scholarly community, from some of our newest members of UTM's leadership team, to students who are doing innovative things on the UTM campus. On this episode of View to the U, Professor Ai Tanaguchi talks about her work as a linguist in UTM's Department of Language Studies, as well as her art, which animates and illustrates much of her scholarly pursuits. Ai specializes in semantics and pragmatics. For those of us who need a primer, or a refresher, as the case may be. She explains both over the course of this interview, but she also goes into detail about the graphics-based project she spearheaded, Limage, which stands for Language, Identity, Multiculturalism, and Global Empowerment. Limage is a project that brings the lived experiences of multilingual U of T students, both domestic and international, to life in the form of comics. In our chat, she is also very candid speaking about her recent diagnosis of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD for short. I feels that neurodiversity, which basically means a person's brain works differently than someone with a brain and way of learning that is considered neurotypical, should be discussed more often and be less stigmatized. She says that it is her own neurodiversity that has fed her creativity and fueled her art and innovative pursuits like the Limage Project. You can find out more about Limage through her Twitter and Instagram handle as well as her website where a lot of her artwork and academic projects are linked in the show notes. Ai Tanaguchi is an assistant professor teaching stream in U of T Mississauga's Department of Language Studies. She completed her PhD in linguistics at Michigan State University in 2017. I was an instructor of linguistics at Carleton University in Ottawa before joining the language studies faculty at U of T Mississauga in 2020. I am a linguist, artist, and an assistant professor. 
And so as a linguist, I am someone who researches what you know when you know a language. So for example, if you are an English speaker, what kinds of things do you have to have in your mind? What kinds of things do you have to know? As opposed to maybe a Ukrainian speaker who might have some similar rules, but maybe some different rules, right, compared to English and things like that. And so those are the kinds of questions that I ask as a linguist. So my specialization is in semantics and pragmatics in particular in language. So I am particularly interested in how the meaning of words combine to form the meaning of sentences. And long story short, I form mathematical models of how this all works. It's kind of like addition, but with word one plus word two that makes up a new phrase and what does that all mean and things like that. That's so interesting. Do you have a math background at all? I don't have any formal math background. I always liked math, but in formal semantics, we do borrow lots of tools from mathematics and philosophy and logic. It's the overlap. I'm looking at your website and you just mentioned that you're interested in semantics and pragmatics and things like social meaning. It sounds so fascinating to me, but when you say semantics and pragmatics, so I'm just wondering if you can explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering, okay, what goes into word meaning? That's one of the questions I ask. And another kind of question I ask is what different kinds of meanings are there in language? So just to give you an example, in the English language, you can say things like, I cut the bread. That's a perfectly fine sentence, right? And you can also say things like, I pet the cat. That's also fine. Okay, so sometimes in the English language, you can like take that object and turn it into a different kind of construction. So for example, I cut the bread, the bread cuts easily. And so the bread is in that subject position, but it doesn't work for all sentences. And so with the cat example, I pet the cat, the cat pets easily (laughs) is no good, right? And so my question as a linguist and particularly as a semanticist is why? A lot of people think that, okay, this might be because of the differences in the kind of meaning that the verb carries. And so pet versus cut. And so I ask questions like that. What do things mean? But also I'm interested in things like, okay, what different kinds of meaning? And so we just talked about, okay, what does pet mean? (laughs) Or what does cut mean? But I also look at things like, okay, if I said something like, I stopped studying Swahili. And so even though I haven't said it out loud, that sentence means that I used to study Swahili. I didn't say it out loud, but it's kind of implicit in there. And so that is a very different kind of meaning than like some of the kinds of lexical meanings that we talked about earlier. And also just things like if someone says to you at work, oh, there are donuts in the kitchen. For some people, this sort of has the implicit meaning, please help yourself to the donuts. This is not true for a lot of people. For me, like, I'm not sure if I would always interpret it that way, for instance, but like that is an interpretation that it has sometimes. And so again, these like unsaid kinds of meanings is also something that I'm really interested in. And so that's what I mean when I say what different kinds of meanings are there. Okay, so then is that what you would call an example of semantics? or Yeah, it's, it's a sort of a mixture. Yeah, and so semantics is more about the meaning of sentences. Like, what does this sentence mean? How do the literal meaning of the words combine to form the literal meaning of sentences? So typically, that's the territory of semantics. Pragmatics makes reference to how meaning works in particular contexts. And so depending on when you say there are donuts in the kitchen, Sometimes it might mean, please help yourself to some, and in other contexts, it might not have that suggestion. And so that's what I mean when I say context affects the meaning. And so that's the territory of pragmatics, typically. But these two things really kind of overlap. 
Okay, and you are mainly talking about the English language. So in other languages, this wouldn't necessarily be the same type of right. And so the, one of the questions is like, how much of these kinds of things are universal across different languages, and what differences there are, and what different kinds of meanings get turned into words in one language as opposed to another language. And so the variation is very interesting. For me, I've particularly studied the Japanese language in contrast to the English language, for example, because that happens to be my background. And do you speak more than English and Japanese?、Uh, and so it's actually true that I studied Swahili a little bit when I was an undergrad, actually. But I also studied French, and so that's the other language I know. I am so interested in languages because I grew up speaking English, but I went to a French school. And I tried to learn Italian later on because my background is Italian, but my father never spoke it because it was a dialect anyway. When I tried to learn Italian,、yeah. the French really interfered. Oh yeah, <laughs> I would go to say something, practicing the Italian, you know, conversation.、Sure. It would come out as、yeah. part Italian, part French. Yeah, <laughs> whether it be the word choices or the pronunciation and things like that, right? I can see.、That. Yeah, I love languages. And so then, how did you get interested in this area of research in the first place? It's interesting. So personally, like you said, I am multilingual, and so I immigrated from Japan to the United States at the age of six. And so I didn't know any English at the time, but I grew up speaking English, and I spoke English mostly like outside of the home. And then at home, I was speaking Japanese. So I grew up bilingual, and so I always had this sort of fascination with language, like you, I think. And so I was always thinking about like, oh. Why does this sound like this in English? But it doesn't really work like that in Japanese. Funny story. So my middle name actually is Elizabeth. I was actually born in the UK, which is also a long story. <laughs> But that's why my middle name is Elizabeth.、Yeah. And there's that th at the end in English. That sound doesn't exist in Japanese. And so for the longest time, I struggled with my own middle name, and I was like, "What the heck kind of sound is that?"、And、so I always had sort of this like fascination with language growing up, and so it kind of started there. And then in high school, you know, I signed up for French language classes, and I enjoyed it. But then when it came time to like choosing my major as an undergrad, it's not the French language that I'm interested in as much as I really liked spotting the patterns in like how the language works, the conjugation of the verbs and things like that. And I was like, oh, I wonder if there is a field that is dedicated to that. And it was linguistics, and that's how it sort of started. And I developed an sort of an interest in linguistic meaning in my undergrad years, I think. And when you learned Japanese, was it a conversational, or like did you go to school? And so back in Japan, before moving to the United States, I went to regular elementary school in Japan.、Okay. And then when I moved to the United States, I would go to these like, what's called like, Saturday school. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure they exist for other languages too.、Yeah. And for Japanese, for several years, I went to like Saturday Japanese school, and so I would learn. Different subjects in the Japanese language, and so I would learn Japanese in Japanese, but also math in Japanese, social studies in Japanese. But it was like a really big commute every weekend, and so it was a lot of time commitment. And so after a while, I started to go to a smaller scale kind of private education weekly that was more local. And so I still studied things like mathematics in Japanese, and sometimes occasionally like Japanese in Japanese as well. And again, the only reason why I'm asking that、yeah. I'm interested, but also I know for a fact when my dad learned Italian, it wasn't from going to school. It's just his parents mainly only spoke、yeah. Italian. And that's how we learned it. Yeah, and so like it's not like I got explicit language instruction in Japanese, so to、yeah. speak. But I think the thing that helped the most, honestly, was 
that community that I went to every week and I would use my Japanese with my peers、yeah. and my family, my parents and my brother would use Japanese with me at home. And I feel like that really contributed a lot to my maintenance of my Japanese language and I still speak it today. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the Limage project that you've created, but I know that your work bridges language and narratives and art. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about this project, but also you did indicate in your intro. But you're also an artist. So I'm curious about this background as well and the project. Yeah. And so, just briefly about the project itself. And so, the Limage project is language, identity, multiculturalism, and global empowerment, Limage. And basically, what I've done in this project is I've interviewed several multilingual students at U of T, and I'm turning their lived experiences into digital comics. So, I'm kind of telling their stories through this art form of comics. And so I work sort of at the intersection of linguistics and art. So, in terms of my art background, so I don't have formal training in art, so to speak. I might have taken one drawing class as an undergrad, but that's about it. But I have always drawn. And so, like, I've always been fascinated by the visual arts. And going back to the immigration stuff at the beginning in the United States, I. Didn't speak English, but art was really a great way for me to connect with the community. And so people would ask me to draw stuff, even though I wouldn't speak English, but they would notice that I would be a good artist. And so it was really a way for me to communicate and interact with my peers when my English proficiency wasn't high enough for verbal communication. And sort of like art really does have a really special place in my heart. And so I just continued to sort of personally pursue art as a hobby for a really long time. And funny that we're here now and it intersects with my work now. Yeah, I think that's so amazing. And I love this idea of turning people's lived experiences into the comic book. And so I guess I'm curious too about the process of that. So I think I saw when you were recruiting students to come and tell about their stories. But what is the process like? Do you just sort of sit down with them and ask them to tell you a particular story? So, the recruitment process was okay. So, I made a flyer and said, Are you multilingual and do you have a story to tell us? And I knew people would because I know I certainly do, right? Just coming from that personal background, I feel like people want to be heard because, especially when you're navigating that really complex, multilingual, multicultural identity, I think sometimes you feel like people don't understand your entire you. And so, this is what I wanted for these students. And surely, yeah, this was true because I got a lot of submissions. And so basically, I asked students, like, what kinds of stories do you have? And so I didn't have any particular stories in mind. These just came from the student submissions. And then from there, I got so many submissions, but I was able to select, I think, 13 in the end. And what I did was I sat down with each individual student and I asked them what their life has been like and any episodes that speak to their multilingual identity. So, funny stories, sad stories, things like that. And so, we have a variety of stories in the project. A bit more background about the Limage project and the pedagogical underpinnings for eye connecting the students and their stories with art as the medium. The reason that The whole Limage project came together. Again, like I said, that personally, as a multilingual person, I know that people want their stories to be heard. So, multilingual people often want people to see their entire self. And so, that's sort of where it came from personally. But also, pedagogically speaking, I've been feeling lately as a linguist that in the field of linguistics, we kind of forget there's 
people attached to the languages that we're studying sometimes. We analyze the syntax and the semantics and the pragmatics, phonology, etc. of the languages. But then we have to sort of sit back down and ask ourselves as linguistics educators, why does linguistics matter for people? I teach these huge intro linguistics courses at UTM. And that's a question that I'm often asking myself because a lot of my students aren't even linguistics majors. Very few of them are going to become PhDs in linguistics. And so what do I want out of my classes? And how can this project help with those kinds of learning outcomes? And so the thing that I kind of landed on was the fact that language is a big part of your identity. Language matters. Linguistics matters because language is a huge part of who you are. And so when you like criticize other people's dialects or language, you're criticizing other people's identities. And so I think this sort of awareness is what I want to spread in our community. And so that's how this project came about from that angle. And I thought that, okay, so what we're really missing a lot of times in linguistics is this first person perspective of these language users, these kinds of experiences that they have. And that kind of informs us what kinds of things we should be teaching to in our linguistics classes. And so I've really learned a lot from my students in this project. That's amazing. And you're making me think. My background, I was a cinema studies major at U of T. I really fell in love with French cinema. And my favorite was Francois Truffaut, but Godard, we watched Breathless many times. But I think it's in Godard where they say, and they're quoting a philosopher, and I'm paraphrasing, language is the house in which man lives or which people live. And I always loved that quote because I just thought, like what you're saying, you know, you're sort of defined by language and what you know, your culture, your language. It defines you, but it also confines you. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. And a lot of students in this project express that kind of sentiment. I think Maryam, who is the Turkish speaker, said, My language is my home, I think she said. Home is sometimes not a location, so to speak, but the sort of relationship you have with your language. And a lot of students express that, okay, I feel like I'm a certain way in one language, but a different way in another language. And so it's sometimes a balancing act, trying to figure out how to express yourself in what context, etc. Yes, and I think, you know, how to express yourself, but also sometimes feeling constricted by, sometimes a word doesn't capture what it is you're trying to convey about how you're feeling or something, like you can't really express it in words. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of students said that that's really a great reason for celebrating kind of multilingualism this allowance of expression of self in ways that you wouldn't be able to do as a monolingual. So it does come with difficulties, right? Again, like you said, it's like, oh, if I want to express this concept, I would use these words in Japanese, but in English, I would express in a different way. And so it is sometimes tricky, but the more languages you know, the more parts of people that you are able to experience, right? And just with your Limoges project, I can't help but reflect on, as you're saying about languages being this defining medium, but then you've got images that are more universal. So even if someone were to look at this, and maybe not necessarily if they're not an English speaker, they can sort of figure out what's going on because of the universality of the... The pictures tell the story too. And so all around, I think this is a great medium for telling these kinds of stories. Nice. And when you were storyboarding, I'm looking at one right Mm -hmm. here. Did you sort of go back and forth with the student once you sort of came up with 
what it would look like? Did you then show it to them and they had to kind of veto or did they give you edits or notes? Yeah, it's a very collaborative process. And I think this is extremely important given the medium that I'm working with, which is comics, because I am the artist of the comics. So that means that my voice sort of necessarily underlies the story that's being told in the comics because I am the one putting the words in the comics. I am the one illustrating the stories. And so I think as a comics artist, you kind of have this responsibility of telling someone else's story authentically. And in order for you to do that, this kind of communication is really, really important. And so when I interview the students, first of all, I recorded it with their permission. And when I'm making the comics, first of all, I'm going to listen to the interview because as a linguist, I'm listening for things like, what was the syntax of the sentence that they use? Or, okay, did they use this word or that word? And so like, how do they actually describe this event, right? And so I pay attention to things like that so that their story really comes out authentically as them. I wanted it to sound like them, not me. And so those are some of the considerations that went in. And then once I draft everything, I do give it to the student for review first. And I ask them, okay, does it sound like you? Are you happy with the artistic portrayal of yourself? Do you want to anonymize any parts of it in case you don't want your entire life to be presented here? And there's a lot of back and forth. That sounds so great. And I'm wondering about the status of this project now, because I know you said it was for a limited time. I remember you were collecting the submissions and then said you have 13. Do you put them up on a website or are you doing a book or? Yeah. So currently for this phase of the project, so I've been posting the comics on social media, my social media, and also my project website. And so right now, out of the 13, I have posted, I think, seven of them so far as we speak. But there are more coming this month and the next month. Yeah. Okay. And is it that you're they all ready to go or you're just taking your time yeah. putting them out? And so this is one of the things I've been learning in this process. <laughs> so basically, the process has been, I did all the interviews in one batch. Like, I interviewed all the students individually, but during the same time period. And then I'm like one by one making the comics for yeah. each student. And I make the comics, student reviews it, it's done, and then I post it. And so it's on a weekly basis kind of yeah. thing. And so not all of them are done yet. Most of them are done at this point, but some of them I'm still working on because, yeah, we're kind of going real time with this. If I were to do this again, would I organize it a little bit differently? Maybe. <laughs> but, you know, at least right now, yeah, it kind of works. Yeah. I feel like there's that little bit of anticipation. People are probably... Yeah feeling like, oh, when is the next one coming? So I'm sure that creates some excitement. Yeah, the social media engagement has been really great and the the reception of this project overall has been really great. People love hearing people's stories, I think. Like, I think it really comes down to that. And so often the social media comments are like, yes, I had the same experience. Or like, oh my God, like I didn't know about this. You know, it's been really great. And that's exactly what I wanted out of this. Is it primarily, and we'll include it all in the notes, but Twitter and Instagram? Yeah, and so I've been posting on Twitter and Instagram. I do recommend Instagram because it is more image friendly. And I'm not asking you to pick a favorite, (laughs) but I'm just wondering if there's been like one particular story that for whatever reason has kind of stayed with you or resonated with you. Yeah, one of the interesting things about this project for me is that every single story had something that I could relate to. And I'm a 1.5 generation immigrant. So I arrived in the United States when I was really young. And so I have this American side to me and also the Japanese side to me. And that positionality has really allowed me to relate to different aspects of the student's story, whether they be an international student or a Canadian student. 
And so, again, like, it's hard to pick favorites, but that's been really an experience for me. And I don't, like, presume to be all of the students, but every single story had something that resonated with me. And so if I may pick a couple, one of the most recent one is about Mustafa. He is a neurodivergent student who speaks Urdu and English, and he recounted his story about learning the English language as a neurodivergent student. And so that one really was a, an impactful, really powerful story for me. And so I was recently diagnosed with ADHD. And so I was working on this story as I got this diagnosis. And so I was processing my life and my language use and everything like that in relation to my own neurodivergence. And there were lots of parts of the stories that I really related to. And I had this realization that, oh, it's because I'm neurodivergent. Yeah. And so that was sort of a really special moment for me, I think. That's amazing. Like, just as you say, the coincidence of working on this story when also finding this out about yourself. Yeah, yeah I'm really grateful that he provided that story because it really allowed for me to have the space of kind of processing. That one was particularly, I think, relatable in that moment. But on a different kind of side of things, one of the most powerful stories I think that I worked on was Alicia's story as well. And so Alicia is an Anishinaabemowin speaker. And her story was about language revitalization and her efforts to sustain the Anishinaabemowin language in her community and keeping that heritage going. That was really inspirational for me. And I say powerful, not in relatability sense, like with Mustafa, but this was really educational for me and something that I wouldn't have been able to learn otherwise. Just as a linguist, I read about language revitalization efforts and the Anishinaabemowin language and things like that. But this first-person perspective that journal articles can't capture, that really did something to me, I feel like. Well, even in just you recounting this, what I'm thinking is, for the most part, I don't know about all of the stories that are involved. When I think about if someone's telling their immigration story or they're coming to Canada or like anything that's related to their language or their culture, I would be thinking about what you're saying about Mustafa, like trying to learn the language, whereas in the case of Alicia, trying to reclaim. And so it's a totally different story, but like you say, very powerful. There were moments of definitely like, because she was talking about her anxiety of learning this language in a new context. And she made the effort to go out into the community. She went to this Anishinaabemowin language camp one summer, she told me, and she made that effort and she told me about the anxiety she had initially about acquiring that language. And that part I can definitely relate to. I've been in situations where I didn't know a language at all, but I feel like her journey was really not comparable to my experiences or you know other people's experiences. And so I was really grateful that she told us this story and I learned a lot about the language itself too. Oh, that's amazing. You are making me think there's this artist, he's on Instagram and his handle is the fake pan. He does something similar just in that he has like people's bad dating stories. (laughs) They're really funny, but he also does all sorts of like social justice stuff, like racist attacks and these things, but he totally tells it in the narrative. And just as you were saying about people being drawn to other people's stories, I think that's the appeal with his art. It's just either he's telling a funny bad dating story where someone said, I'm going to the washroom and they never came back or (laughs) something. But then he's also telling these really heavy stories about like police brutality. The comics format is, I think, really special for this kind of discussion because like with Alicia's story or with other stories, there's definitely traumatic 
moments in your story sometimes with your multilingualism, whether it be a microaggression that you've experienced or anything else. But with comics, you kind of have this flexibility of how you tell that story because I don't want for the student to be re-traumatized, like in recounting that kind of story, rereading that story. And I don't necessarily want for the readers to be re-traumatized if they also relate to it too. And so for comics, right, okay, so if I want to tell something serious and something traumatic that might have happened, I have the option to maybe visually tell it in a more abstract way, like using visual metaphors instead of using the actual character to talk about that experience and things like that. And so I think comics particularly helps with these kinds of stories that we want to tell. Totally. And just even with the example that you just gave, I can't help but think, because I really do like graphic novels, but one of the first ones I think I read was Mouse. And just like you're saying, he told a very heavy story, but because they were all attributed to a cat or, you know, a mouse or a pig, even though it was still very heavy, but I don't know, just put a different spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you can inject the emotionality in sort of a really effective way, but at the same time, time there's that balance that you can strike I think by backing away from it see that's different from photographs because if it's a story told through a photograph it's real it's that person and so then the podcast is meant to be get to know people if there's anything else that you like to do outside of the work that you do in linguistics and in art is there anything else that you gravitate towards Um, students know me as a halloween enthusiast (laughs) it's like my favorite holiday and so this past year i actually won the halloween costume contest at utm (laughs) it was really funny Um, i was dressed up as cruella (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that's one side of me. But the other side is, I already mentioned it, but my ADHD, first of all, like quite frank about talking about this, think that we should normalize these kinds of conversations. So I'm happy talking about it. But I guess this is kind of new to me, because I'm 33 and just got this diagnosis. And I think I hope to, on my social media, tell more stories about what it's like being a neurodivergent professor. Because I think a lot of students might be wondering if they themselves are neurodivergent. Can I go to grad school? What's that going to be like for me? And I feel like these kinds of stories help them better envision their future maybe sometimes. And again, comics are great for that. It's accessible. You can distribute it to a wide range of people online. And so I'm hopeful to use this medium for a lot of different purposes. Can I ask two sort of follow-up questions about the ADHD? Mm -hmm, Sure. So when you were diagnosed, first of all, I guess I'm curious about how you knew even to pursue getting a diagnosis, but also once you got the diagnosis, were you just, oh, a lot of things kind of clicked for me? Yeah, for me, so... I think it was like three years ago that I maybe started to suspect that I might have ADHD. And it was, I think, like at the onset of the pandemic and we were all like adjusting to a new lifestyle. I think that's where I really started to miss Zoom meetings or forget certain things. And so these kinds of things became noticeable in my life that I started to wonder if I needed to ask someone about what's going on. But also funny story So this is going to sound a little bit silly, but okay, I was on TikTok. You know, like the TikTok algorithm, it sort of recognizes which contents you relate to. And so like at a certain point, there was this video about someone who was telling the story of how sometimes people put their hands in front of themselves Mm -hmm. like this in this posture. And sometimes it's called like a T-Rex pose. (laughs) And so like this, the hands kind of dangle in front of you. And some TikTok said that that's a neurodivergent thing. And I was like, oh, I do that all the time. (laughs) 
And I was like, that is so strange. Like the very specific thing. <laughs> and so of course that didn't make me go, oh, I have ADHD, but it was just years and years of repeatedly kind of encountering other people's stories about what their presentations are like. And I was like, oh, I do do that. And so again, I think stories help with this, hearing other people's experiences. That's when I started to think about a diagnosis. But once I found out and once I got the diagnosis, it was kind of like, yep. Like, okay, a lot of my life makes sense now. Did the ADHD, like looking back, did it impact the way how you were as a student? Yeah, well, looking back now, it did. It did impact me as a student, as an undergrad, for example, but even before that, too. Now I'm kind of like, oh, man, I wish I knew in undergrad because I would have asked for help. But I didn't even think to ask for help because I didn't know what was going on, yeah. I guess. And this is what I'm thinking is that there's a lot of accommodations yeah. now made for students who have different ways of learning and finding out now is yeah. probably yeah. <laughs> it helps yeah. you going forward right. for sure <laughs> I could see where it's all these things kind of fall into place when you kind of make that connection yeah. right yeah. I feel like a lot of my childhood made sense like okay yeah I did lose a lot of things or like a lot of things that kind of appeal to me and things that don't appeal to me oh actually for example the Limoges project itself so one of my ADHD strengths is creativity my brain is just drawn to innovation, something new and shiny. And so I'm always thinking about, okay, how can we do this in a new, in a fun way? And so my Limoges project is really kind of a product of that. How can we tell people's stories and how can we have more of a humanized aspect of linguistics in sort of an accessible, innovative, and fun way? And of course, because of my interest in art, this project was born. And so sometimes I think that, yeah, my neurodivergence really puts me in a special position where I excel at this kind of project. This seems like a very good positive way to end the interview because I just feel like what you've just said, I think encapsulates both your work, but also taking the positive that it's you have this creative side to you and it you were the way that you were, you wouldn't yeah. have this project. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's nice. And for a lot of multicultural and multilingual students, navigating different parts of your identity is hard. Oh, is it neurodivergence or is it my multilingual? For me, growing up, I maybe didn't notice some of my neurodivergence because I thought that maybe it's just a Japanese thing, you know, yeah. things like that. I think there's a lot of variables when it comes to multilingualism and everything else in your life. I think this conversation is important. I hope students are able to navigate their identity in a way that is fulfilling to them. Yeah. Identify your strengths and places where you need a little bit more support. And I think that's good to do. Well, I just want to thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to tell me about your work and also this wonderful project. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Thanks. <laughs> I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would especially like to thank my guest, Professor Aitanaguchi from UTM's Department of Language Studies, for her time, for being so open in this interview and generous in sharing about her work, her art, and on the topic of neurodiversity. I highly recommend that you check out her Instagram, which is linguistAIT. She posts all the Limoges stories there, and they are encounters with all sorts of interesting narratives and languages, such as Arabic, Afrikaans, Anishinaabe Moin, Chinese, Punjabi, and Urdu. But she also includes many informative posts about other cultures, linguistics, and facts about neurodivergence and language. 
When we did the interview, she had seven stories posted, but as of today, at the end of June, I saw that she is up to 11, so there are two more to come for the full 13. They are all really great. If you can take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you are using today, it helps others find the show and hear more from our great UTM academic community. Lastly, and as always, thank you to old Tim Cajon for his tracks, tunes, and support. Thank you.